This message comes from NPR sponsor Sony Pictures Classics presenting Run, Lolo, Run. The groundbreaking, high-octane cinematic sensation has returned to theaters in magnificent 4K. Don't let Lola pass you by. Get tickets now at runlolorunfilm.com. This is Fresh Air. I'm Terry Gross. My guest Keegan-Michael Key loves sketch comedy, watching it, performing it, and now writing about it. With Jordan Peele, he was half of the sketch comedy duo Key and Peele, which was also the name of their show on Comedy Central. When the series ended, Key and Peele split up as a duo. Peele went on to direct the films Get Out, Us, and Nope. Key went on to act in films, including a comedy about improv and sketch comedy called Don't Think Twice. He co-stars in the TV series Schmigadoon, a great show that lovingly satirizes Broadway musicals. He made his Broadway debut in a show written by Steve Martin called Meteor Shower and played Horatio in the New York Public Theater production of Hamlet, which starred Oscar Isaac as Hamlet. Now, Key has returned to sketch comedy by writing about it. He hosted the podcast The History of Sketch Comedy, which he wrote with his wife, L. Key, and they've adapted that into the new book, The History of Sketch Comedy. Keegan-Michael Key, welcome back to Fresh Air. I think the last time we spoke was when Key and Peele ended the series on Comedy Central. That's right. So that would have been 2015 or so. Yeah. So that was a while ago. It was a while ago. It's good to be back. It's great to have you back. You were doing the Mad Show during the previous actor strike, right? Yes. I was on Mad TV at that point in time. And that would have been, oh gosh, 2007, I think. And uh, yeah, so but this is the first time in a very long time that the writers and the actors struck at the same time, and uh, so it's been it, it's just um, it's a new landscape that we're dealing with. So, and let, let me explain your presence on the show. You're not here to talk about a, a movie or a TV series. You're here because you have a new book, so that's why you can be on the show without breaking the guidelines. That's right. That's right. So um, let me start with kind of where we left off. When we spoke, Key and Peele, the TV series, was ending. Um, I think we spoke right before the last episode. Um, oh. So what happened? Like, did you and, and, and Jordan Peele decide to end the series, or was it ended by Comedy Central? No, we, we decided to end the series. We wanted to get really British about the whole thing. If you know what I mean, you know I don't in, know what in, you mean. <laughs> well, yeah, in the <laughs> in the UK, um, very often when they do series or or uh, of television shows, what they do is they only do them for three years or four years or five years, and then they stop the series. They just they just there's always a kind of um, uh, with me and Jordan, there was a natural ending. It just felt like we wanted to move on to other things, and we were like, yeah, we could probably continue to do this for six years or seven years or maybe even eight years. But we both felt very strongly that there were other things that we wanted to do. And and so we decided to move on. But you were still on good terms with each other? Oh, yes. We were on great terms with each other. It was it was a mutual decision for us. And, um, and we knew that we would work together again sometime soon. We just didn't know what the project would be. And Jordan was immersed in Get Out at the time. He was really... Oh, so he was already working on that. Yeah, he had been working on it for about eight years. He he had had different uh, amalgamations of the script in his mind, and he kept on rewriting it and rewriting it and rewriting it. And he had been doing all of that, um, actually starting during the Mad TV times, uh, all the way into Key and Peele. And so he was raring to go when we had finished the show. 
I don't remember you having a small part in that. <laughs> I did. I didn't. I didn't have a small part. In it. Isn't that funny? I see that sometimes <laughs> in the credits. It says, you know, it'll say uncredited or cameo by Keegan Michael Key, and I'm like, I guess that means my spirit <laughs> was in the movie. I get. Uh, why weren't you in it? I don't. You know, I don't know why I wasn't in it. I. Um, it's funny. Um, I, I think that he had. He had a vision, and in this, with this particular project, his vision did not necessarily include my physical presence in the in the film. It might have been also that he wanted, and I'm and I'm speaking. This is all supposition that that he might have wanted a clean break from Key and Peele at that particular moment in time, and really put his stamp on that project. That's 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 a theory. That's a theory. I have no idea if that's the case, but that's how I kind of feel about it. I think this is something that everybody who's in a sketch comedy group goes through when the group disbands what's it like to be on your own after that it was it was in a way it's bittersweet because you miss the camaraderie and you miss the day to day but then there's also this liberating feeling of i'm on my own to do whatever i want and express myself however i want and that's fun and also um uh, freeing, but there was something that made me miss the writers and the producers and the that particular creative process, which was Key and Peel, was something that I had, I had grown accustomed to, and I really liked spending time with those people. But but it was time to move on, and it was it was time to move into other directions and other avenues, and it, it just it just felt right for us to be finished at that time. One of the other avenues that you moved on to was playing Horatio in Hamlet. Um, is that something that you'd always been yearning to do? It's funny that you ask that because it is. It's something I, I have wanted to play Horatio for over 20 years. Wait, wait, I'm going to stop you. Most people want to play Hamlet, not Horatio. <laughs> yes, I know. That's funny. I, it's, it's, it's interesting that I wanted, to, I wanted to play Horatio. Ever since I saw um, there was an actor by the name of Nicholas Farrell who played Horatio in the Kenneth Branagh film Hamlet, that very expansive, exhaustive film where I, I don't know I, I don't know if Kenneth Branagh cut a single line from that version of Hamlet because that was like a, a four-hour movie that I enjoyed every moment of. And um, I remember seeing his performance as Horatio and I really, really, really wanted to be uh, in that role. I, I loved that part. I loved playing the best friend or having an opportunity to play the best friend. And I, I couldn't have asked for a better partner than Oscar Isaac when we did it at the, uh, the public. It was, it was magnificent. So one of the reasons to play Horatio is like, he's the guy who survives at the end. Yeah, like, he, gets, he lives. Dead. You're right. <laughs> but, it's pretty much Fortinbras and Horatio, and then everybody else is gone. Yeah. <laughs> so, uh, spoiler. <laughs> spoiler alert. I got to make it to the end. The black guy makes it to the end, Terry. <laughs> The black guy makes it to the end. (laughs) (laughs) Setting a new precedent. (laughs) Setting a brand new precedent, both theatrically and cinematically, yes. So one of the things you have to do playing Horatio is to kind of figure out what to do while Hamlet's doing soliloquies. So, like, you're on stage, people are seeing you, but no one's really paying attention to you, but someone's going to be looking. Like, you're still in the visual frame on stage. Especially in the theater that we did it in, too. We did it in a small, small theater that had about 300 seats, and it was really, I mean, you're on top of the audience. In fact, sometimes I was on top of the audience. There, there, was, a, there was a moment in the play where I actually sit on somebody's lap, 
and um, and converse with them for a couple of seconds before I go on stage. So yeah, you're right. You have to stay. Well, for me, it was easy because Oscar Isaac was such a a fantastic Hamlet and a role that that Oscar had been preparing for for about twelve years. He and uh, Sam Gold, our director, they both they both went to Juilliard together, and they were working. They had been working on this for such a long time, thinking about one day we're going to do a production of Hamlet somewhere. And um, every night, uh, I got. I got like it felt like I had a front row seat to watch these wonderful, you know, some of the most f- famous soliloquies in the history of of English speaking language. And so for me, it was really uh, a challenge, a fun challenge to be able to sit there and, and, and concentrate on those words and the way that Shakespeare constructed the words. And it was oh, yeah, it was it was a lot of fun. But what about when you had to be on stage during a soliloquy? Like, what what did you do with your body and your face? Well, what I would what I would typically do was I w- would focus all of my attention, especially if I, if I was sitting in the audience, I would focus my attention as much as possible on Oscar and actually lean my body forward, so that if the audience member sitting next to me got weird or starstruck or anything, and they're turning and looking at me, they see that I'm looking at the stage. They see that I'm also being an audience member and trying to be a good audience member um, so that I have the opportunity to to kind of coach them in a way is that, okay, make sure that you're paying attention to what I'm paying attention to. And as opposed to them, you know, looking at their wife and just going, look, look, look the, the, the actor, he's right here. He's right here. Look at this guy. You're modeling behavior for I'm them. modeling behavior. Well said. Well said. When you were young, when you were 14 or 15, you used to listen to cassettes in the car of Saturday Night Live, and I, I assume you memorized some of the sketches and, and kind of studied them. Did you dream of being on that show? Like once you knew that you were going to be part of sketch comedy and improv comedy, was that ever your ambition? It was um, It was definitely my ambition. In fact, before I knew I was going to be part of sketch comedy, before I – because when I was in high school – there there were no avenues uh, for sketch comedy in Detroit. We didn't – it wasn't like – if you were 14 years old and you were growing up in Chicago, there were places that you could go. You could go to the training center at the Second City and take classes. And there is a culture there that is uh, that is already established – Whereas in Detroit, we didn't have that. All I had was the cassettes that I had of the, you know, the best of Saturday Night Live or watching Saturday Night Live late night with my father uh, when he would let me stay up uh, before church on Sunday, <laughs> which was sometimes nice of him to do. And um, uh, so I, I thought once I saw Eddie Murphy, I just was done. I was like, that's it. I want, I, I want in. I don't know what this is or how you do it. And my parents, being social workers, they really didn't have any knowledge to share with me about the industry. But I knew that there was some way I had to get in. I, I wanted to do what Eddie Murphy was doing at the time uh, more than anything. I enjoyed listening to his stand-up, um, which, you know, his stand-up was replete with profanity. So my parents were not, you know, terribly thrilled about it. But when we watched him on SNL, he was a dynamo. I, I, I just wanted, I wanted, it, whatever. I was just look at him and just go, whatever that guy's doing, I want, I want in. I want to be able to figure out how to be part of that world. Did you ever uh, apply to audition on Saturday Night Live or dream that one night when you were on, um, on stage at Detroit Second City? Because Detroit Second City 
came uh, um, after your childhood. So when you were first deciding, like, I want to do sketch comedy, you didn't have the option of Detroit's second city. It didn't exist yet. That's right. It didn't exist yet. It didn't exist until the early 90s. So uh, the the Detroit second city, did you dream of being discovered there by one of the uh, Saturday Night Live scouts? Or did you send them, you know, tape hoping that they would um, bring you onto the show? It's funny. When I was in Detroit, I did send a tape to Mad TV. I remember auditioning for Mad TV on tape. But I thought when we were in Detroit, I thought, you know, the scouts are never going to come here. The only way that you'd be able to do that is if you were at the um, the main stage theater in Chicago or at the ETC theater in Chicago because the scouts always went to Chicago. And um, I was going to audition for for SNL. I was going to go to Studio 8H. And before that happened, I ended up having the opportunity to audition for Mad TV. So I went that direction. What are some of the characters you created back when you were in Second City on stage? And I feel like we can talk about this because it's theater and it's not movies or TV. That's right. So it's not represented by SAG, the Screen Actors Guild. That's right. Um, I played, uh, I created a character named Coach Hines um, uh, at the Second City. And he was um, a, a guy who definitely needed anger management classes. Um, he kind of like Obama's anger like Obama's management. anger translator. Yeah, it seems yeah. like the characters that the, the character my most successful characters are these really angry characters that uh, that um, uh, sometimes espouse violence. <laughs> but it's it's kind of contrary to who I am in in real life. But uh, 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 it's um, it seems to be the characters that that resonate a lot with people. Um, but Coach Hines was a character that uh, I created at the Second City, and he's an amalgam of a bunch of coaches from my childhood. So, you know, there, he's like 20% this guy from grade school and, and 20% this guy from high school and 20% the dean of students from high school. So it was a football coach and a PE teacher and the uh, basketball coach and even the look, the, the, the look uh, of the mustache that he had and his hair were based or inspired by these coaches from my childhood. And how did he sound? Um, he sounds, he's got this, he's got this, this kind of, uh, um, <laughs> um, you know, there, there's like a break in his voice and his voice is always about ready to break. I'm sorry, Casey, if I'm getting loud, but the guy is loud. Okay. He was always loud. And he's, and he, what he would do is he would threaten the students in the school because during an assembly, if people weren't behaving, he would make sure to whip them into shape, Terry. Because I've had it, okay? Yamanashi, Johnson, Tompkins, if the three of you don't knock it off right now, triple murder. I'm not even playing. Okay? If everybody in this auditorium doesn't take the opportunity to shut their traps, I am going to set this building on fire. Okay? So if you were attracted especially to people who were angry, why do you think that was? I, I, you know, I don't know. I don't know exactly why. I that maybe that maybe there's some anger inside of me that uh, that I, I that was my therapeutic way of of, of getting it out. <laughs> it was through character, because um, I try I try to be in my regular life kind of like this, you know, hell fellow, well met, jolly guy, <laughs> and 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 then there's something there's something about these characters that uh, 
that I don't know they're 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 freeing in a way. Uh, it's interesting. I, I, I don't I don't really know how to answer that question. Did you ever sit back and think this is a fun show watching this guy kind of lose his cool? Yeah, it is fun. I think I think it's fun because he was so misdirected too. He, that was part of what was so funny about him is that is that he would he would he was he was being more disruptive than the students were. So then he would tell the students, he would tell the students to be quiet or shut their traps and everything like that. And the funny thing is, he's the one that's interrupting the assembly. He's the one that's um, that keeps on um, interrupting the principal as the principal's trying to speak to the student body about you know uh, behaving, about not bullying, and then and then my character would be bu- would be would be bullying the kids. I'm wondering how the new awareness in Hollywood of inclusion and diversity is affecting you as a light-skinned biracial actor who can maybe, like, fit in either role, but, you know, I, I don't know how that's affecting you. So far, it hasn't... I haven't really bumped into anything um, that's been untoward or has been really a challenge. Um, I do look back at sketches from Key and Peele and I think to myself, oh, would I be allowed to play that role anymore? What what kind of role? Well, there there was a sketch. Uh, the one that comes to mind right now is there was a sketch where I played a um, an Indian doctor, and as, as in from the country India, as in from the country India, right? And so I wonder now if they would say if you were going to be in that if, if you were going to do that sketch, you would hire an Indian actor to play the role, and then I just wouldn't have been in the sketch. It just would have been me. And or just would have been Jordan and this Indian actor, or anytime Jordan and I would play um, cholo characters, uh, Hispanic, you know, Los Angeles characters, we wouldn't. It seems that we wouldn't be in our own sketches because we would just be we would be hiring, which I guess you could still you could still call the show Key and Peel. We would just be known more um, as writers. <laughs> than performers, and, but performing performing was was so much fun. Being being able to perform those characters was so much fun. So, what, what's your take on that? Uh, I think that uh, I think that the inclusion is, is important. Um, I'm, I'm I'm literally here trying to trying to actually fix the show. <laughs> in my mind, I'm going, how would we do our show now? And would we just simply not be in as much uh, in as as many sketches? I want people to uh, have the opportunity to play those roles. I mean, it's it's been such a long time that everybody else has co-opted those roles that it would be nice now that we'd have an opportunity for people to play to play their own race. I I, I really am in support of it. You might not have had the money to hire them. That's true. We might not have had them. <laughs> I mean, it's a sketch comedy show built around two actors who do characters. Um, so I think I think you know it's kind of tricky because you're, you're. I mean, you're satirizing everybody that you see. Right, right, and that, and and that and that is actually kind of one of the traditions of sketches. That is that you have a you have a, a small troupe, or in this particular case, a couple. And they do everything. That that that's part of the razzmatazz of the show, is that you can is that that they're capable of doing everything. There there's a kind of a virtuosity to it. 
Well, let's take another break here. If you're just joining us, my guest is Keegan-Michael Key, and he has a new book he wrote with his wife, L. Key, which is called The History of Sketch Comedy. And of course, he is a sketch comic as well as an actor, and he was uh, half of the duo Key and Peel. Uh, we'll be right back after a short break. I'm Terry Gross, and this is Fresh Air. Support for this podcast and the following message come from Doubleday, publishers of Lessons in Chemistry. Be inspired. Read Lessons in Chemistry, the number one global bestseller with more than 6 million copies sold. Meet Elizabeth Zott, a 60s-era scientist who brings her smarts and unapologetic worldview to a TV cooking show that has the power to change lives. Lessons in Chemistry is available wherever books are sold from Doubleday. This message comes from NPR sponsor, Visit Myrtle Beach. Sun-drenched days, live music every night, and 60 miles of uninterrupted coastline, Myrtle Beach was made for playing hard and beaching easy. Combine that with the aroma of fresh seafood, southern classics, and local low-country cuisine from over 2,000 restaurants. You belong at the beach, Myrtle Beach, South Carolina. Plan your trip at visitmyrtlebeach.com. This message comes from NPR sponsor, Dana-Farber Cancer Institute. It's called protein degradation, and if you're a bad protein in a cancer cell, you'd better get your affairs in order. Because now, thanks to Dana-Farber's foundational work, protein degradation can target cancer-causing proteins and destroy them right inside the cell. This approach is making a difference in multiple myeloma and other blood cancers, and is how Dana-Farber is working to treat previously untreatable cancers. More at DanaFarber.org slash everywhere. When voters talk during an election season, we listen. We ask questions, we follow up, and we bring you along to hear what we learned. Get closer to the issues, the people, and your vote at the NPR Elections Hub. Visit NPR.org slash elections. I'm Fresh Air's Anne-Marie Baldonado here again to tell you about Banned Books Week and our Fresh Air Plus bonus episodes. This week, we listen back to two different interviews with novelist Judy Bloom, one from 1984 and one from 2023, and hear how she navigates censorship and public controversy as an author. What I wish is that parents would read the books that their kids are reading and maybe have a clearer understanding. Maybe it would take them back into their childhoods. Want to hear more? Subscribe to Fresh Air Plus to get every regular Fresh Air episode sponsor-free and get exclusive bonus episodes, too. Find out more at plus.npr.org. Let's get back to my interview with Keegan-Michael Key. He first became famous as half of the sketch comedy duo Key and Peel, along with Jordan Peel, who went on to be a filmmaker. Key went on to be an actor and... Um, now a writer as well. He's performed in drama and in comedy, things like in Hamlet at the New York Public Theater and in the streaming TV series Schmigadoon, which is a loving parody of Broadway musicals. He's done voice work for animated movies. And now he's written a book with his wife, L. Key, about the history of sketch comedy. It is therefore called The History of Sketch Comedy. <laughs> um, so in talking about the history of sketch comedy, the subject of your new book, um, I'm thinking of the fact that your wife, Elle, co-wrote it with you. A through line through the history of comedy that I think is over is wife jokes, as in, take my wife, please, 
but so many jokes about you know wives and mother-in-laws that were always like really offensive <laughs> mm-hmm. and not everybody thought of it that way at the time because that's what comedy was but now it just like you hear those jokes and just cringe um so how did you want to deal with wife jokes in the book and i'm also wondering if you and your wife had long talks about wife jokes it's interesting we've not we've not um talked about wife jokes that much it's interesting it's also interesting that um that l she comes from a tradition she comes from a, a jewish family where they would tell what we like to call hard jokes which you know a, a hard joke terry is where you have a real definitive setup and a real definitive punchline just a, a real you know you know set them up knock them down kind of jokes and uh l is very good at that she has an encyclopedic memory for these kinds of jokes. And um, we never we never really explored wife jokes a lot. I feel like it's interesting. You're right. They are cringeworthy now. It's so, it's so interesting that generationally speaking, we, we seem to find things that are... I don't know why we, we thought wife jokes were funny in the first place. Um, I wonder if it's just that men were trying as hard as they could to keep women under their thumb, and so we would make jokes about women nagging and and um, but they're but they're but they're not funny. They're not really funny. We didn't have long discussions about it. Um, the thing that that we spent more time talking about was L was kind of kind of cracking open open my head and looking inside and saying, "Oh, I can take this piece out and I can take this anecdote and this story." And use them as the the thread through the book. So what she did is she took um, uh, kind of the memoir part of the book, which is which are stories about my life, and she wove them together with the the history of comedy in general and also comedy sketch comedy in specific. And I think I just found out that L is actually your partner and not your wife. So. I can't really ask you about partner jokes. <laughs> yeah, right, right. <laughs> Those well, partner L, jokes L, are so condescending. <laughs> <laughs> um, L is my wife, but she, um, uh, it's funny. She is, she is my wife. She is my wife. That, but we actually. Um, but you're partners on the book. We're partners on the book. Yes, we're partners okay. on the book. Okay. Mm-hmm. Thank you for the clarification. Yes, you're absolutely uh, welcome. Our relationship started as partners, as uh, working partners. We started. Oh, I was going to ask you about that. Yeah. 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 We started. Our relationship started um, uh, wanting to figure out how to work together, and um, one of our first meetings that we ever had was uh, we had a dinner and we were trying to figure out how we would how we would work together. And Elle was telling me all of these jokes, and I had never heard of these jokes before. And at one point in time, she was like, "Are you kidding me? You're telling me you've never heard any of these jokes?" And I said, "Listen." I'm just a little uh, a little Catholic black boy from Detroit. I do not know these Borscht Belt jokes. <laughs> and so so bring them on. Come on. T- tell me as many as you can. And 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 she did and and I was howling. But we also found out that we both like to analyze jokes, which uh, some people will say there's a danger in that. Right. A lot of people will say that. Yeah. But I find I find it very fascinating. So can you um tell a joke and then analyze it for us? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, so I can, t- I can tell you my favorite joke, that, a joke that Elle told me that evening that today to this day is my favorite joke. And the joke is there's an old lady who um, calls downstairs to her husband and she says, Morty, 
Why don't you come upstairs and make love to me? And he says back to her, fine, but I can't do both. Okay, so break it down for us. Okay, so the setup, the setup is as soon as you hear the phrase, uh, she calls downstairs. So you need to hear the word downstairs. So you need to know that that the man is downstairs and that uh, that she wants him to come up the stairs. It's real basic, but you need to hear the phrase calls downstairs to hus- her husband, Morty, and says to him, why don't you come upstairs and make love to me? Make love to me makes you feel th- there's two things that could be happening. One is that you're going, okay, she's an older she's an older woman, so is it possible is it possible that he doesn't want to make love to her? That might enter your mind. But the other thing is, but making love is a, is a desirable thing and a pleasurable thing. So wouldn't he want to make love to her? Of course he wants to make love to her. It's his wife. He loves her. So that your your brain is starting to bring up all of these answers of what you think the answer to the joke would be. Does that make sense? Yes. Yes. So so that that's how a joke that's how a setup of a joke works. Is the setup always makes you start to assume what direction you think the joke is going in. And then when he says, "Fine," you go, "Okay, he's going to go upstairs. He's going to go upstairs." And he says, "I but I can't do both." The thing is that you 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 then remember that she that that at the beginning of the joke you said that she was an old lady, which makes you assume that Morty is also an old man, and you go, oh, I get it, he's old, so he so so once he gets upstairs, he's going to be so winded he won't be able to make love. I get it, I can't, but I can't do both. Aristotle said that the ideal end of a dramatic situation is that it ends and that it's both unexpected, and inevitable. So when you hear the end of a joke, a really good joke, usually it's unexpected and inevitable. So you don't, you, you go, oh, he's an old man. That's inevitable. That once he gets up the steps, he's not going to be able to make love. So that that is how I would break down that joke. Hilarious, right? Absolutely <laughs> hilarious. But it helps if you're writing a joke to think about that, right? Yeah, that's what you have to think about when you're when 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 you when you're writing a joke. You have to think about how am I going to turn this at the end? How am I going to zag? And and that's the most important part of a of the anatomy of a joke is is all the things that you're sub, uh, you're supposing and all the things that you're assuming when you set up the joke, and then how are you going to turn it on the back end? So it's time for another break here. So let me reintroduce you. If you're just joining us, my guest is Keegan-Michael Key, and he's written a new book with his wife and writing partner called The History of Sketch Comedy. He is a sketch actor who was half of the duo Key and Peele, along with Jordan Peele. We'll be right back. This is Fresh Air. This message comes from Apple Pay. Everyone knows that credit card numbers can be stolen. But you know what's harder to steal? Your face. With Apple Pay, your purchases are authenticated by you, thanks to Face ID, making your smile your signature. Just double-click, smile, and tap. With each tap, your card number and your purchases stay secured. Pay the Apple way with your compatible device anywhere contactless payment is accepted. This message comes from NPR sponsor FX, presenting Clipped, the scandalous story of the 2014 Clippers owner's racist remarks captured on tape and heard around the world. The series charts the tape's impact on a dysfunctional basketball organization striving to win against their reputation as the most cursed team in the league. Starring Lawrence Fishburne, Jackie Weaver, Cleopatra Coleman, and Ed O'Neill. FX is clipped, now streaming only on Hulu. This message comes from NPR sponsor Discover. 
Tired of not being able to get a hold of anyone when you have questions about your credit card? With 24-7 U.S.-based live customer service from Discover, everyone has the option to talk to a real person anytime, day or night. So the next time you have a question about your credit card, call 1-800-DISCOVER to get the service you deserve. Limitations apply. See terms at discover.com slash credit card. So I want to ask you a little bit about your early life. You were adopted at the age of three months. Your biological parents and your adoptive parents were interracial couples. Uh, When you were growing up, my understanding is you lived on the border of a black part of Detroit and a suburb that was largely white. So um, what were the schools like that you went to? You went to Catholic school, right? I did. I went to Catholic school. I went to a Catholic school in the city. And when I started going to school, I believe that the demographic of the school was kind of 50% white, 50% black. But by the time I had graduated, it was in the 90th percentile of African-Americans. So I spent a lot of time kind of traversing this social bridge, if you will, between my home life and my school life. Because at home, I spent most of my time with my white mother. And then at school, I spent most of my time with other African-American students and teachers. And so I think part of why I do what I do for a living actually comes from the fact that I could jump between these cultural um, flagposts, if you will. So what did your um, parents teach you about race? And how did they model race for you as an interracial couple? You know, my my father, who was African-American, it's interesting because he was actually a very quiet man. And I, di- I think what I learned from him in regard to race wasn't really about being it wasn't really about being a proud black man i didn't really learn that from my dad i almost kind of had to do that on my own uh my dad was uh it sometimes i feel like he almost identified more as a catholic than he did as an african-american which i know may sound strange um but he he went to college in the 60s, in the early 60s, he went to college in Utah, which is where he grew up. My father grew up in um, Salt Lake City, Utah, with the other 12 black people. And, <laughs> and he, um, he really um, uh, went, to, he went to Utah State University. And there he met uh, a Monsignor who took him in. And so you can, you can imagine that the student body was probably 98% white at the time, if not more. And so my dad felt a, a little displaced, and but he didn't know what else to do. So he went to school at Utah State University and met this Monsignor. And I think what happened for him was that he felt that the, the, the Catholics took me in. And so he converted to Catholicism and then converted the rest of his family to Catholicism, my, my grandparents. So we, we didn't have like this example of of black power or black pride. Uh, that was not kind of what my dad was all about. What was it like seeing him not identify so much as black? I had, I had to find it. It, it, was, it was confusing in a way because my, he was a large man and he had very dark skin. So it was almost that uh, he, he didn't, it, it was almost like he was choosing not to do that 
But the thing is, he didn't have a choice. He, it, it, there, there was this thing where you kind of said, oh, if we have, my dad said to me when, when I was young, he said, if you have one drop of black blood in you, you're black. But my, but my mother was the person that said that you, you can, or sh- I don't know if she said should, but you can identify as a biracial person. And um, because you're, 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 otherwise you're denying the one whole half of your culture. So it was it was always very very confusing for me. Um, which 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 approach did you take, or did you switch back and forth, or um, create I your think, own idea of your own identity? I think I had in my own idea of my own identity was that I am a person who is biracial, and that I can span different cultures, and that there's a few of us out here in the world. Um, uh, somebody affectionately refers to us as swirls, um, like you know when like when you get a chocolate and vanilla swirl soft serve, <laughs> that they call us swirls. And that a lot of us, uh, you know, Jordan included, some like Jordan or Rashida Jones or Maya Rudolph, that there's quite a few of us out here who, it's almost as if we're, um, uh, some people are bilingual. It's as if we're bicultural. And and that's um, something that I identify with and identify as, as being a person who's bicultural. And how do you think you're seen by other people? That must change depending on who the person is. Yeah, I think um, I think that I'm seen by um, uh, by African American youth and by African Americans in general. Uh, very often seen as one of the standard bearers. Uh, people people often say that t- to me that Keen Peel meant so very much to them as ident- helping them identify as African American, but then also. Um, blurds or black nerds super identify with uh, Key and Peele because it's almost its own subculture. Jordan and I were writing from this subcultural place, which was being black nerds, being, you know, you, you know what I'm saying? Like a, a, an African-American who loves Star Trek or an African-American who l- loves, you know, um, being a mathlete in high school and, and feels no shame about it. We, those people really identify with us. But then also on the other side of the spectrum, we have, um, I don't know if, if the term militant is what I'm looking for, but people who really identify as black and identify in, in regard to black power, and they also enjoy the show. So, um, and then, you know, I've had many, many um, white people will, will say how much they enjoy the show as well. And they're coming from a place of saying, the show is so clever. It's just so funny and clever. And, um, but, the, but, the, but I'm not getting, getting cultural dialogue from, from, um, from those people. So um, you and Elle, your wife and writing partner, did a lot of research into the history of comedy going like way back. Um, what's something that you found especially uh, interesting or, or funny that you didn't know about before? One thing I didn't know was that as far as we knew from our research, the first recorded joke ever um, was in 1900 B.C. So I wouldn't have thought it would have been that far back. It was by the Sumerians. When you say recorded, obviously you don't mean... <laughs> yeah, yes, I don't mean on, on, you, you on mean tape. On yes, tape or... Right, see, or, right, or, yeah, or, mean or re- recorded on a stone digital, tablet. Yeah, uh-huh, yeah, okay. Stone tablet, all right. And, and the joke, if you, if you look in the book, the joke is, you know, we're talking about uh, Sumerians who are people who, you know, came up with algebra and I think they invented the wheel. <laughs> and this first joke that was recorded uh, from our research is actually a fart joke. <laughs> 
What was the joke? Uh, the, 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 the joke goes something like, um, since time immemorial, there has never been a young lady who did not fart in her husband's lap. That's the joke. So that goes right back to the beginning of what we were talking about, right? Wife jokes. Oh, interesting you'd point that out. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I'm wondering, like, what was a Sumerian word for fart? <laughs> yeah, that's a good word. <laughs> who translated do that research. it? <laughs> yeah, I'm wondering who translated this. Yes. <laughs> so I, I, I can't ask you what you're up to next, although I'd really like to know, because you're an actor, you're a member of the Screen Actors Guild, and are on strike, and shouldn't be talking about that. You have been able to talk about what you've done on stage because stage actors are not part of the Screen Actors Guild. Whatever you're up to next that we can't talk about, I wish you great success with it, and I hope it's fulfilling and fun. Thank you very much, Terry. I appreciate that. It's been lovely talking to you. It's been great talking with you. Um, I really enjoyed it. Keegan-Michael Key's new book is called The History of Sketch Comedy. After we take a short break... Our TV critic David Bianculi will review a series of four animated adaptations of Roald Dahl stories directed by Wes Anderson. They're streaming on Netflix. This is Fresh Air. Support for NPR and the following message come from Betterment, the automated investing and savings app. CEO Sarah Levy shares how Betterment's innovation can help Americans save. The real innovation for Betterment about a decade ago was taking a set of tools that were used by the ultra-wealthy and making them accessible to the average investor. And that includes tax strategies, that includes dollar-cost averaging, that includes taking a long-term view and not getting distracted by market volatility. These are all sort of tricks of the trade. And what Betterment did is they basically said, no matter the amount of money you have, it's always good to be invested. It's always good to start early. It's always good to save. And the power of being consistent in your habits is really the path to long-term wealth. Learn more about automated investing and saving at Betterment.com. Investing involves risk. Performance not guaranteed. This message comes from NPR sponsor, BetterHelp. When life is flying by, it's important to take a moment to hit pause, set intentions, and reset. That's where BetterHelp Online Therapy comes in. Just fill out a brief questionnaire to get matched with a licensed therapist and switch therapists anytime for no additional charge. Visit BetterHelp.com NPR. Support for NPR and the following message come from NPR sponsor, Allianz Travel Insurance. From quick weekend getaways to international vacations, an annual travel plan from Allianz Travel Insurance can protect your adventures for the next 365 days. And with benefits starting as close as 100 miles from home, you can have peace of mind wherever you go. Get a quote at AllianzTravelInsurance.com. Netflix has rolled out four short adaptations of equally short stories by Roald Dahl, the author of such well-known longer stories as Charlie and the Chocolate Factory, The Fantastic Mr. Fox, and The Witches. Adapting these short stories for television and directing them is Wes Anderson, whose own longer works include Asteroid City, Rushmore, and a stop animation version of Dahl's The Fantastic Mr. Fox. Our TV critic David Bianculi says that once again, the joining of Anderson's and Dahl's singularly strange visions makes for a perfect artistic union. Here's David's review. 
In addition to all the movie adaptations of Roald Dahl's works, from Willy Wonka and the Chocolate Factory to the BFG, he's been no stranger to television. In the 1950s and 60s, Alfred Hitchcock used his TV anthology series to present classic versions of some of Dahl's creepier short stories. One was Lamb to the Slaughter, where a pregnant wife killed her unfaithful husband by clubbing him with a frozen leg of lamb, then roasting the murder weapon and serving it to the investigating detectives. Another was The Man from the South, which starred Peter Lorre and Steve McQueen as gamblers who entertained a fairly horrifying bet. Look, I'm devoted to gambling, but I have never asked anybody to put up more than he can afford to lose. What, for instance? Oh, I'm going to make it easy for you. Easy for you to win a car, I mean. Is that all right? I'm listening. I like the easy part. Well, I'm thinking of some small thing that you could afford to give away. And, and if you lose, well, you won't have to feel so bad, such as, such as the little thing on your left hand. My what? Is that so strange? He wins, he takes the car. I win, I take his finger. Is that so strange? Then, in the 70s and 80s, Roald Dahl himself appeared as the TV host of another anthology series, serving up new but inferior versions of those two stories of his, along with many others. That British series was called Roald Dahl's Tales of the Unexpected, and began, like Hitchcock's show, with a personal on-camera intro. I ought to warn you, if you haven't read any of my stories, that you may be a little disturbed by some of the things that happen in them. When I'm writing a short story, I'm haunted by the thought that I've got to hold the reader's attention for literally every second, otherwise I'm dead. And now, on Netflix, come new adaptations of four Roald Dahl short stories, all of them written for the screen and directed by Wes Anderson, and all of them featuring his dazzling fairy tale book visuals. The longest of these, The Wonderful Story of Henry Sugar, is under 40 minutes. Others are half that length. But all of them are gorgeously filmed, wonderfully acted, and astoundingly faithful to the text and tone of the original prose. In addition to the unique look of these adaptations, Anderson takes a unique approach as well. He makes two brilliant artistic decisions. The first one is that he has a small repertory company playing all the major parts— So Rafe Fiennes, for example, plays not only a creepy rat-like exterminator in The Rat Catcher, among other roles, he also plays a version of Roald Dahl himself, providing occasional introductions and other observations, as in the opening scene setting up this series. Well, here we are now in the hut where I write. I've been in this hut for 30 years now. Well, it's important. Uh, Before I start, I like to make sure I have everything around me that I'm going to need. Um, Cigarettes, of course, some coffee, chocolates. And always make sure I have a sharp pencil before I start. I have six pencils, and then I like to clean my writing board. So many bits of rubber. And finally, one starts. But the other brilliant approach in Anderson's telling of these tales is that he lets the various characters serve on occasion as their own narrators, 
looking at the camera directly and spouting descriptive passages and stage directions, breaking the fourth wall while still playing the scene. It's daring, but it works. And it has them doing it at warp speed, talking so rapidly it's almost hypnotizing. In the wonderful story of Henry Sugar, there are four different levels of narrative flashbacks or digressions, each with its own storyteller. One of them is Benedict Cumberbatch, who tells of Henry Sugar finding a book in a library, while, at the same time, playing the role of Henry Sugar. He was about to leave when his eye was caught and held by something quite different. It was so slim he never would have noticed it if it hadn't been sticking out a little from the books on either side. He pulled it from the shelf. It was actually nothing more than a cardboard exercise book of the kind that children use at school. The cover was dark blue, but there was nothing written on it. Then, as Henry opens the pamphlet to read it, the story is taken over by another rep company member, Dev Patel. He's a doctor telling his story, and also acting it out, of being visited by a man with an outrageous extrasensory claim. That man is played by yet another rep company member of this talented troupe, Ben Kingsley. My name is ZZ Chatterjee, head surgeon at Lords and Ladies Hospital, Calcutta. On the morning of the 2nd of December, 1935, I was in the doctor's restroom having a cup of tea. Three other doctors were present with me. Dr. Marshall, Dr. Mitra, and Dr. McFarlane. There was a knock on the door. Come in, I said. Excuse me, please. May I ask you gentlemen a favor? This is a private room, I said. Yes, I know, and I'm very sorry to burst in like this, but I have a most, I think, interesting thing to show you. All four of us were pretty annoyed and we didn't say anything. Gentlemen, I'm a man who can see without using his eyes. In addition to the wonderful story of Henry Sugar and the Rat Catcher, the other stories presented by Anderson on Netflix are The Swan and Poison, which was adapted by Dahl's own TV series, but terribly. Every one of these new TV offerings is spellbinding. And even if Netflix or Wes Anderson might not think of them as a modern TV anthology series right up there with Black Mirror, I sure do. David Bianculi is professor of television studies at Rowan University. Tomorrow on Fresh Air, we'll talk about the history of Hamas and how it got to the point that it could launch such a shocking and devastating attack on Israel. Our guest will be Daniel Byman, a senior fellow at the Center for Middle East Policy at the Brookings Institution. I hope you'll join us. To keep up with what's on the show and get highlights of our interviews, follow us on Instagram at NPR Fresh Air. Fresh Air's executive producer is Danny Miller. Our senior producer today is Sam Brigger. Our technical director and engineer is Audrey Bentham. Our interviews and reviews are produced and edited by Amy Sallett, Phyllis Myers, Lauren Krenzel, Heidi Saman, Anne-Marie Baldonado, Teresa Madden, Thea Chaloner, Seth Kelly, and Susan Yakundi. Our digital media producer is Molly C.V. Nesper. Roberta Shorrock directs the show. Our co-host is Tanya Mosley. I'm Terry Gross. Support for NPR and the following message come from Proven Winners Color Choice Shrubs. Their flowering shrubs and evergreens are trialed and tested by expert horticulturists for 8 to 10 years to ensure a beautiful, high-performance display in your landscape or garden. And because the team at Proven Winners Color Choice Shrubs is passionate about gardening, they've put together resources to help you get started with garden projects big and small. For example, did you know that hydrangea flower buds form on branches the year before they bloom? With guides like Hydrangeas Demystified, you can learn from the experts and get your questions answered on hydrangea pruning, watering, reblooming, and more. 
Proven Winners Color Choice Shrubs are available in the distinctive white containers at garden centers nationwide, including over 50 varieties of hydrangeas. Learn more at provenwinnerscolorchoice.com slash NPR.